Welcome to The Bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, Kate's father, which I want to mention since the last time uh, she introduced me in one of these podcasts, she called me her co-host, which I thought was a bit impersonal. Uh, But I am her father, and this is our two-generational, two-gender look at books, The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And if it's the first time you're joining us, we welcome you. We are so excited. This is a great show for you to join us because in some ways we are delivering on one of the promises that I hope this podcast uh, would do, which is that like we would have a writer on who we loved and then they would tell us about a writer that they love and then we would read that writer and they would become a writer that we love and then they would come on the show. And it happened. And so today, John Irving, who has been so kind to the show and generous of his time, and I'm such a fangirl of all of his work, he said that he would read anything that John Boyne wrote. And so when I received a catalog that had John Boyne's name in it, I had to order it right away. And the book was All the Broken Places. John Boyne, B-O-Y-N-E, is an author that I didn't know, but I did know. He wrote some years ago, a book called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And it was made into a movie. I saw the movie. That was the first exposure I had to The Boy in Striped Pajamas. And I went back and read the book. But sometimes you just don't notice who the author is. An admirer of the author, John Boyne, I just didn't know his name when John Irving mentioned it. Yeah. And what's interesting about All the Broken Places, which is his new one, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, I think, is considered an adultish YA book. It's a wrenching novel about the Holocaust, but it is considered a YA book. It's similar, I think, to The Book Thief in that way. All the Broken Places is a novel. It's not a YA novel. It's a novel, but it's sort of a sequel to The Boy in Striped Pajamas. I don't think we should give away any of that because the central point of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, the central event in that book is also a central event in this book. But it is, as you say, something of a sequel in that it is, well, it's a book about guilt. It's about complicity in evil Mm. and shame that can exist. The central character, I'm now not giving anything away. Mm -hmm. The central character is a woman named Gretel, and she is 91 years old narrating this book, although you see her in different stages of her life. And she is looking back at the fact that her father was the German commandant of Auschwitz. And she knew what was going on there, but she has never paid a price for that. She was very young at the time, very, very young. And she wrestles with this. It's it's almost like, this is a strange uh, maybe connection. I, I was thinking of crime and punishment when I read this. When you carry that guilt around that you knew and you didn't tell anyone and you didn't talk about it and you've just sublimated it all your life, what kind of effect does that have? And I think John Boyne uses that central question very well. Yeah, I agree. He uses it very well. Really, her complicity, her guilt, her shame, which, by the way, I think it's interesting. You'll hear in the interview, John defines guilt and shame differently, which I think is really interesting. She sublimates that guilt. She sublimates that pain. She sublimates all the horrible things that she saw. She plants it almost as a seed, and it grows into, I don't know, one of the main one of the main focuses of her psyche. And she's grown into this old age, having to live with all of these horrible memories. And how she deals with it and what she does as a result, even at the age of 91, is very interesting. One other small point to mention, you mentioned The Book Thief, which it reminded you of. He dedicates the book to Marcus Zusak, 
who wrote the book Thief, which became such a phenomenon and was one of my favorite books of all time because his book, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas and The Book Thief came out about the same time and they were doing several appearances together and they became friends. And as far as I'm concerned, any friend of Marcus Zusak and any friend of John Irving's is certainly worth having on the bookcase. So here is our conversation with John Boyne. John Boyne, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. We have enjoyed reading your books. We were put on to you by John Irving, who when we said to John, what author will you read no matter what he wrote? And yours was the first name mentioned. Way back at the beginning, when we started this, another Irish writer, Niall Williams, said to us that Eudora Welty had said that an author should encapsulate their book in the first sentence or paragraph. I have never seen that done as well as you do in all the broken places. Do you have the book handy and can you read that first paragraph? Um, yes. Um, it'll just take me a, a moment to open it. Firstly, that's a very kind compliment from John Irving, who has been a good friend and mentor to me over the years. But the opening line of All the Broken Places is, if every man is guilty of all the good he did not do, as Voltaire suggested, then I've spent a lifetime convincing myself that I am innocent of all the bad. It has been a convenient way to endure decades of self-imposed exile from the past, to see myself as a victim of historical amnesia, acquitted from complicity and exonerated from blame. It's a very interesting first graph. How did you compose it? It wasn't there in the very first draft of the book, actually. Um, I started with the, um, a little further down on that page. But once I got to the end of the book, you know, you realize at the end of the first draft of a book what your book is actually about. And it's often very different than what you thought it was going to be about. And I realized that most of this is really to do with guilt and complicity and shame, as is quite a few of my books. Complicity seems to, to run through them. I wanted to kind of express that in the opening paragraph. And I sort of did some research, I guess, and was looking for some quotes, something that might be appropriate for Gretel, the narrator of this book, to say. And when I came across the Voltaire quote, I thought I can just twist this around now into the opposite for her. And it seemed like a good way to start a story about somebody who has been living with shame and trying to understand her own relationship to the events of the past. Do you define, because you talk about shame and guilt being two themes of your books often, certainly it's a very central theme in this book. Do you define shame and guilt differently? I do, I suppose, because I think people can be guilty of something or feel guilty about something without feeling ashamed of it. And you can feel shame for things that you don't necessarily feel guilty of, I think, in your life. And you can feel shame. In Gretel's case, she feels shame because of her family history, because of things that were done by her father and by her country. And she feels ashamed of that. But her question for herself is, do I need to feel any guilt for it? And you know, she was only a child when the events of the Holocaust take place. So in that sense, she doesn't feel guilt about what took place, but she feels ashamed of her father for what he did. But she does come to realize that by not giving the Allies and the Liberators information about the camps that she was aware of, that that is something in later life that she starts to feel guilty about. And she knows that she should have given this information that could have been useful to the families of victims or survivors. And it's something she's challenged on several times throughout the novel. It's such an interesting couple of sentences. She has found a convenient way to endure decades of self-imposed exile from the past, to see myself as a victim of historical amnesia, acquitted from complicity 
and exonerated from blame. It is the controlling factor of her life that she has gone through as a child the horrors of the Holocaust and had to deal with the fact that she never revealed that to anyone. Is Gretel, in your mind, a sympathetic character, or do you blame her for not revealing to authorities, etc., what she saw at Auschwitz? I think I try to create characters that are quite ambiguous and that hopefully the reader will get to the end of the book, not entirely sure where he or she stands on that central character. Just before we started, we were talking about the absolutist. I did it in that. I did it in a history of loneliness about the church scandals here in Ireland. I think Gretel is ambiguous in that sense. I don't think she's fully sympathetic. She's not the victim. We know who the victims are. But she is somebody whose life has been overshadowed by the events of her childhood. And to some extent, I think we can feel sympathy for her. She has got to this point in her life, age 91, where she hasn't really done anything to atone for the crimes of the past. And the events of the novel give her an opportunity to atone, to have one moment where she can do something for one person that might just kind of save her soul, so to speak. But I didn't set out to make her either sympathetic or unlikable. I tried to just make her real. You know, I asked myself in writing a book like this, what would it be like to be somebody whose father was a commandant at a concentration camp? What would it be like to know that there is so much blood in your family's history? I don't think most of us are either heroes or villains. I think most of us are somewhere in the middle. We've probably all committed acts of kindness in our life, and we probably all have things that we feel ashamed of. So I don't think Gretel is any different than anybody else in that sense. And I think my job as a writer is to try to create as authentic a character as I can, but not necessarily sympathetic or the opposite. I've read about you. You talked about, you know, you finished the boy in the striped pajamas and you knew Gretel's story wasn't finished. But you also thought that because you wanted to write Gretel from the perspective of an old woman, that you were going to do this later in life. And I know that a lot of it was the pandemic, but what finally sort of got you over the hurdle of courage to say, okay, I'm ready to tell this story now? Or were you just like, heck, I'll take a stab at it and see if it works? Well, there's a little bit of that, to be honest. You know, it was, um, I trust myself very much as a writer that the idea that's kind of jumping up and down in my head that I feel this is the right one to approach next, I trust myself with that. And it just felt like it was the right one. But there was another element to it is that this is 2022. She's 91. If I waited another 40 years to write this, obviously she couldn't be 131. So by its nature, it would have been more of a historical novel. There is a historical element to this book, of course, because we see three sections from her past. But I wanted it to be contemporary in her telling of the story now, because I wanted it still to be that there are people who have the experiences she's had, but also there are still survivors of the Holocaust. I'm been fortunate. I'm part of that, probably the last generation of writers who's had the opportunity to meet survivors of the Holocaust during my journeys with Boy in the Striped Pajamas. So I felt like I was kind of running out of time to make her be able to be alive and compass mentis and be able to tell her story. I had to kind of do it in these couple of years now. And once I realized that, that I could keep it contemporary, it just, that was the thing that sort of put me over the edge and made me say, yeah, this is the time. But was it intimidating? I mean, a 91-year-old woman, mm. you know, I mean, when people say, write what you know, 
you're neither 91 years old nor a woman. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, how did you go about, was that intimidating at all? Not really, because, uh, you know, most of my novels are very, they're not autobiographical, really, most of them. I have put myself in the shoes of a bodyguard to the Russian czar, a First World War soldier, a boy at a concentration camp. I think I'm pretty good at kind of just using my imagination and thinking, what would it be like to be that person in the same way that an actor or an actress might? And I quite enjoy that. And the interesting thing was that because Boy in the Striped Pajamas was such a big book for me, one might think it would be intimidating going back to that subject matter and that family. But actually, because I've been talking about them for so long, I've been talking about that family for the guts of 20 years, and almost no day goes by where somebody doesn't mention it to me. I felt very at home returning to her and discovering who she is and using her voice. Even though it's a very dark subject, it was kind of a pleasure for me to sit down at the my desk every day and continue her story and see where it would go. I felt comfortable with her. Um, and you don't always feel, you know, sometimes it takes longer to feel comfortable with your first person narrator. But I felt very comfortable with Gretel from the start. And I also quite like older narrators. Again, I've written about three or four older narrators. I seem to write about either very young people or very old people. Um, I don't seem to write very much in the middle. Your own age doesn't interest you at all. <laughs> no, and, but the funny thing is like, I'm, I'm literally halfway between Bruno's age and Gretel's age. Mm. And I don't seem to write about middle-aged people. I seem to write about children or the elderly. I don't really know. Well, the children, maybe because, you know, I, I quite like the naivety that you can use to tell stories there. But an elderly, I quite like the elegance that you can put into the writing, the, the wisdom. The, you know, Gretel is, a, is an erudite lady. She knows what she's saying. She thinks about her words. And I like that as a writer rather than sort of a, a loud voice. She's very introverted, which was not how I expected her to be because during those years when I was thinking about writing this book, I had a very different idea for her. I thought, firstly, I thought she would be living in New York and not London. Mm. And I pictured her as one of those kind of, you know, those kind of old people that maybe are on the street and they're screaming at strangers and they're screaming <laughs> nonsense, you know? Um, I my, neighbors, my neighbors, my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought she'd be one of those sort of people. But when I went to write her, she's so different. She's introverted. She's quiet. She's calm. She doesn't want attention. She likes just being at home and she just wants to be left in peace. And I think that was the right way to approach her. I do too. I thought her later life after her youth, seeing her father as the commandant at Auschwitz, I thought this is somebody who would turn inward not outward, but this is someone who would bottle up their feelings. And since this is about guilt and it's about complicity and it's about grief, those are things that you carry inside, I think. And I think that was, yeah. was very well done. But one of the things, John, that interested me, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas was a searing book. And if people haven't read it, they should. It was a wonderful movie. But you caught some flack for it. And you caught flack because some people felt that you had been too it's about a relationship between Gretel's brother, a boy who is there with his father, head of Auschwitz, and his relationship with a boy who's inside the fence, who wears striped pajamas and who is himself an inmate. And a lot of people thought you were wrong. I disagreed, but felt you were wrong in being too involved with the son of the commandant and less of the boy inside the camp. Did you in any way feel that you needed to correct that impression in this book? and be more sympathetic to what was going on inside the camp, and that that would be what Gretel would carry around with her in her guilt? It's possible that subconsciously I did, but I didn't start writing this book as a response to any of that criticism. You know, I've thought about that criticism over the years, and it's a more recent one, to be honest, because for the first sort of 12 to 13 years of 
the book's publication, there was no controversy attached to it. It was a, just a generally popular book. And then it became, as they say, more problematic. My feeling on the issue is that had I written that novel from the point of view of Shmuel, the Jewish boy inside the camp, I would have been pilloried for doing so. I'm not Jewish. I don't have that personal relationship with the Holocaust. And even though I have a good imagination and I'm a fiction writer, I felt that if I put myself in the shoes of the little boy within the camp, that would be a step too far. For me, Bruno was always representing those of us who are studying the subject. So he is literally walking to the fence, looking across, asking, who are those people? What are they doing there? Which is what we're doing when we study that subject. We're trying to understand it. So I've always felt that Bruno is kind of taking our place in that. Now, I do know that some people, because of that, people feel that I'm sort of directing the sympathy towards Bruno. I don't believe that's true. I think if a person gets to the end of that book with that ending and feels more sympathy for Bruno than they do for Schwul, I think that's uh, something they need to ask themselves why they feel that way. Yeah. yeah. But that would say something more about them, I think, than me. I never certainly would have intended that. They're both innocent children and they both suffered the same fate. And our sympathies should be for both of them. It wasn't that I was writing this as a response to that. But what I would say is that I did write that book when I was 33, and I'm 51 now. So I'm older, I'm wiser. I would hope I'm a better writer, more experienced. And I think even writing it from, as we've been saying, the perspective of such an elderly character gives me the opportunity to write with a little bit more wisdom than the fable-like element, which is there in the original book. Did I hear you say at the beginning, John, that you didn't know exactly where this was going to go when you started? Oh, I never really do. I don't really plot the whole thing in advance. All I really knew was those timelines. I prefer to just start with the idea and see where it takes me. And I find that's an exciting way to work. And oftentimes you'll put something into a book and you don't know why it's there, but it will reveal itself later on. And sometimes I think the book is all here, you know, it's in the back of the head and you're just digging your way towards it. But I enjoy that process. I, I, when I started out first, my first couple of novels, I would have plotted them all in advance. So I would know when I sat down at the desk every day, the scene that I was going to write, simply because it would help me actually get to the end of the book. But after, you know, 21 books in, I'm confident in what I'm doing. I prefer to just start and let the story build before me. And I mentioned earlier about that I sort of trust myself as a writer. I trust myself in doing that, that whatever puzzle the novel presents itself to me with, that is something that I feel I would be able to solve. How would you classify yourself? Are you principally a storyteller? Are you an historical novelist? Are you a moralist? How do you categorize yourself generally? I'm not on Twitter anymore, but for a long time, my Twitter profile just said storyteller. And that is, for me, what the essence of novels are. I think you can write the most beautiful language, the most wonderful images, the most poetic words, but if the story isn't engaging, if the reader doesn't want to know what happens next, you lose out somewhere. The greatest writers I know, people like John Banville, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, they tell stories, they tell great stories. And that's the world that I want to sort of see myself in. Um, I absolutely consider myself, above all other things, a storyteller. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. John Boyne, Rapid Fire, favorite children's book? The Silver Sword by Ian Sorelier. Why? I read it when I was about 12. And for people who don't know it, it's also set during the Second World War, which seems to be my particular interest. And again, it's children on their own in the world without adults sorting out the problems for them and finding kind of heroism and valor during such a traumatic experience. Your favorite Irish author? John Banville. I think he writes the most beautiful prose that I think I've ever read for a contemporary writer, but he never forgets his humanity in these books. There's so much emotion and heartbreak, loneliness at times, memories of sad love affairs, broken love affairs, and they're so smart. And John Banville is a um, very smart man, very funny man. And I think he's, he's our best. What a lovely tribute. It was a lovely tribute. If I wasn't a writer, I would be... I would be an aspiring writer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if I wasn't an aspiring writer, I would, you know, I think I would have liked also to maybe have been an actor. And when I was a teenager, I was very, very shy. And I wouldn't have had the confidence to kind of get up on a stage. But now, I mean, I love being in front of an audience. I love talking about books in front of an audience. And I like imagining other lives. So I think I might have liked to have been an actor. Most influential book in your life? Oh, the most influential book certainly was The Cider House Rules. When I read The Cider House Rules, it was when I was about 15 or 16, and I was starting to get into more adult literature, adult writing. And that story, with its social message, its political message, but also the the journey of Homer Wells from childhood to adulthood and growing up in that orphanage under the tutelage of Dr. Wells, the humanity in it, it just knocked me for sideways. I never understood a novel could be so powerful and moving and affect me as much as that book did. And so many of his other books have done similar things, but it was reading Cider House Rules for the first time that convinced me I wanted to be a writer. Since guilt and shame are big themes in your book, what is your guiltiest reading pleasure? Oh, well, you know, I actually never really feel guilty about any kind of reading. I think if something is something enjoyable, then that's fine. My comfort reading sometimes really is Agatha Christie. And, you know, maybe we can call it a guilty pleasure, but I love to go back to an Agatha Christie. You know where you are with them, you know, and you know you're going to be entertained and you're going to have to figure <laughs> it out. And I quite like the sort of the manners in it, that sort of 1930s England and the way she writes them. So I have quite a lot of Agatha Christie's in my house that I do enjoy returning to, but I don't feel guilty about it. I don't know if you enjoy a, a good pint. I do. But what's your favorite pub? There's a pub in Dublin called The Duke. And it's on Duke Street. And it's been kind of always my favorite because the bookshop I worked in right through my 20s was just across the road from it. It was the place we always used to go after work. And it's a very literary pub. They run the Dublin Literary Pub Crawl. It starts from there. And the walls are covered in pictures of Irish writers. And every time I go in, it just brings me back to that wonderful time in my 20s when you're when I was young and hoping to become a writer. But everyone in the shop was an aspiring actor or musician or writer. And it was just a 
there was a lot of you know broken hearts and things in that pub and it was a great it's a great place and i still go in there today the duke on duke street yeah in five words what would you like the rest of your life to be um can I say what I'd like to do? Sure. You can use any way you want to do it. To fall in love again. Ah. Uh, Lovely. I'd like that, because I'm not in love right now. Our conversation with John Boyne. Very interesting man. And his other books are interesting. This one being all the broken places. But you read a book, Kate, that really was very personal for him. Hearts Invisible Furies is about, is really covers the lifetime of a narrator who is gay living in Ireland, basically from the 1960s to the turn of the century. And it's really the panoply of being drawn to Ireland, but also being extremely angry at Ireland. The Irish Catholic Church ran that country with an iron hand for many, many, many years. Out of wedlock babies, not okay. Being gay, not okay. Being a woman, eh. he, John Boyne, the writer, loves and is drawn to Ireland in a way that he probably couldn't even define. But he's also angry at it. And that was very clear in The Heart's Invisible Furies, which if you get a chance to pick up, I highly recommend. And I very much enjoyed The Absolutist, which is one of his other books. He's written a total of 21, I think 21 novels and a number of young adult novels as well. The John Irving recommendation, the John Irving seal of approval, I think very well earned by John Boyne. We're going to turn now to our local bookstore of the uh, of the week. Uh, this is the Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington, Kentucky, and in Cincinnati, Ohio, a duality that sort of interested Kate. We talked to Kate Heinenen of Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington, Kentucky. Kate Heinenen of Joseph Beth Bookstore. It's good to have you with us. You guys are spread out. You're in Kentucky. You're in Ohio. How does that work? Well, so the Lexington store is the original. And then they expanded to include a bookstore in Cincinnati, but those are the only two bookstores that we have. So we're still pretty local. I'm not really sure why, but I guess, you know, a lot of people, it's a day trip to go up to Cincinnati. It's just an hour away. So it's a nice place to go. Big city. I mean, Lexington's a city, but it's definitely got more of like a small town feel to it. So all of our book buyers and everything are located in the Cincinnati area. Do you serve your customers differently? Like, excuse me for being fascinated by this, but you're yeah. the first bookstore that exists in two different states. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, do you buy differently for the two different sets of customers? Yeah. So our book buyers buy definitely different books. We have a local section in Lexington that's specifically curated for local authors, authors we do events with, authors that live in the area. And that's different. I mean, there's some overlap, but it's different than the local section that Rookwood has in Cincinnati. But our customer bases are different. You see like the Geraldine Brooks book, Horse, that's been a huge, huge seller for us. And Rookwood itself, it sold pretty well, but not nearly as well as it did for us because we're horse country. I was going to say, why am I surprised that in Kentucky, a book named Horse sells very well, <laughs> yeah. and in Cincinnati, it doesn't. But let me give you a final exam question at the University of Kentucky. <laughs> Compare and contrast Kentucky readers and Ohio readers. I would say our Lexington readers are very interested in, of course, books about Kentucky, books that have to do with horses. They're also very big historical fiction 
readers, which is very interesting. Coming into working at Joseph Beth, I was not expecting the amount of historical fiction readers that we have, but we really do. And there, we have people coming in all the time who are looking specifically for local Kentucky authors. All right. So then follow up exam question. I come in and I say, I want to read your favorite local Kentucky author. What do you put in my hands? Ooh, to start out with, probably Silas House. I would say he's one of our most well-known Kentucky authors. And he he has a trilogy. You don't have to read them in order, but they're specifically about Appalachian life. Clay's Quilt is sort of seen as the first one in that series, but he also has another book, Southernmost, and he just came out with a new one, Lark Ascending, as well. So he's, I would say, if you're looking for the first Kentucky author to go for, he's probably one of our most popular, and he comes into the store all the time and is just the nicest and will always sign books and talk to people. And he's really involved in the writing community as well, Mm -hmm. which is great. He and I would say also Gwenda Bond, Mm -hmm. she does pretty wide range. She did Stranger Things novel, but she also does, she's moved now into romance and both of them are so involved in the literary community in Lexington, which is awesome. Obviously, Lexington is a smaller town than Cincinnati. But when I look, it's tough to tell things from still pictures, but when I look at the still pictures of your store in Lexington, Kentucky, it looks like you have a palace. (laughs) Yeah, it's huge. Well, the funny thing is, is it used to be a mall, just a self-contained mall. So there were different stores and downstairs was the food court. And that's all been renovated now so that it's just our bookstore in this big building. So downstairs, what used to be the food court is now our kids section. So the whole bottom floor is all kids toys, kids books. We have stairs where we do story time almost every day. And then all upstairs is books. And then we have a bistro as well. Was there a book, Kate, that made you say, yeah, I'm going to be a bookseller? Um, I got a degree in English from UK. And then getting out of college, I had grown up going to Joseph Beth, and it had always been something that I wanted to do just because I've always been obsessed with books and with the history of literary movements and the different authors and things. And so I would say right before I graduated, I came into the store and I was just sort of looking around, not really knowing what I wanted, but a lot of times in college, you don't have the time to read for pleasure. And I just wanted something that I could pick up. And I found this author, Samuel R. Delaney, who I had never heard of before. And we had his book, Dahlgren. And I picked it up and it didn't say much about what the book was actually about, but it has since become, from the first line, one of my all-time favorite books. And from there, just looking through the shelves and realizing that every time you look at them, you see a different book that you had never heard of before. I love to be able to, and I know my coworkers do as well. There's nothing quite like recommending a book and having someone walk out with it and hoping that you gave them the right recommendation and hoping that you see them again and that you can talk about the book with them. So that was really 
it's funny that you say that because I was a bookseller for a while. Yeah. And every time that I would do a drive by and I would put a book in somebody's hands yeah. and they would say, Oh, I'm going to go sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at these and I'm going to see which ones I want. I always went up to the cashier afterwards and said, which ones did they buy? Yeah. And I don't think people that sell, I've said this before. I don't think people that sell pants do that. No, no, I really, and it's so, books are so personal. And I mean, it's anywhere from the writing style to what the book is about to when the book was published that all of that you have to take into account when somebody says, oh, I like so-and-so or I'm, this is my favorite book. And then you have to think, okay, well, did they like the book because of the writing style? Did they like it because of the content? Do they like postmodernism? And do they want to read more postmodernists? Like, what is it about that book? And then trying to figure out Joseph Beth books. There's got to be a story behind that. Are Joseph and Beth friends? Were Joseph and Beth one person? What? How did that name? It was the last name of, or a combination. It's like Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> a combination of the names of the founders, which they, I believe, sold the company and moved. I think they opened up another bookstore out on the East Coast, I think, but the the name remained. Kate Heinen, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington, Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> you can go to this huge, magnificent store in uh, Lexington and the Lexington Green, and then you can go to the smaller one in Cincinnati. It's only an hour away in Rookwood Pavilion in Cincinnati. Kate, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I had a great time. It was awesome talking to you all. And as usual, we'll mention the names of the folks who make this great show possible and then a coda from John Boyne. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. If you write one page a day, at the end of a year, you'll have 365 pages, which is about the length, if not longer, than the average novel. And anybody can do that. Anybody can sit down and write one page a day. And, um, and if you do, maybe you'll get to live this wonderful life as a writer as well. Oh,